This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The jail is overflowing with inmates in Pueblo County. On average, it houses nearly 50 percent more people than it was built for. And Pueblo isn't alone. Other Colorado counties also struggle with overcrowded jails. I'll speak with two lawmakers shortly who hope to address this problem. First, CPR's Sam Brash filed this story from Pueblo. Third control, give me 322, please. On the third floor of the Pueblo County Jail, Detention Bureau Chief Jeffrey Teschner leads me to a cell on a wing for women. This is the standard. This is the triple bunking right here. The room is meant to hold a single inmate. In Pueblo, almost all of them hold three. Two women bunk against a wall. The third sleeps on a blue plastic cot on the floor. One inmate, Savannah Sandoval, says that's called rolling on a boat. It's claustrophobic, like you feel smothered, you know what I mean? There are more boats in the wide hallway at the center of the cell block. Inmates often end up here if they're going through detox. Inmate Cricket Doherty says she has some first-hand experience. I was on a a boat, too, for a minute because I'm a heroin addict. But if you're out here, they put you out here because you get sick, you get where you need to throw up, you get diarrhea, you get nausea, so it's quicker for you to go to the bathroom. The Pueblo County Jail is the most overcrowded jail in Colorado. But the problem extends across the state. A recent survey of 20 counties found that seven have overcrowded jails. And to understand why, a good person to start with is this guy. My name is Kirk Taylor. I'm the Pueblo County Sheriff. Sheriff Taylor lays it out like this. More people aren't coming into his jail. In fact, his bookings have been static for two decades. But yet I can show you the average daily population of this facility almost double. That's the riddle. It's a riddle with a seemingly simple answer. People now stay in the jail longer than they used to. Taylor points to multiple reasons why. The local DA has stepped up prosecutions of certain crimes. Pueblo has a major opioid problem, and drug-addicted inmates tend to stay in jail longer. But Taylor says the main causes haven't come from Pueblo. They've come from the state capitol. So there's numerous statutory changes, small, subtle that have over time culminated in just exactly what you're seeing. Three empty prisons, county jails are full. Changes like reclassifying certain drug felonies as misdemeanors, which can be served in county jails, or parole violations that now result in jail stays instead of a return to state custody. Okay, good morning. You call the uh, committee. Uh, State lawmakers looked into the problem of jail overcrowding this summer. A committee is now considering solutions. Ideas are things like telephone reminders so people don't miss their court dates and end up in contempt. Another is paying counties more to hold state prisoners. I think the good news is we don't have any preconceived idea of what we're going to do here. So, Meanwhile, Pueblo County is going to its voters. A ballot initiative this November asks for a countywide sales tax increase to build a new jail. Part of the existing facility would be refurbished into an addiction treatment center. Commissioner Garrison Ortiz is leading the campaign. We need to take control of this situation before we're having to react to it. Ortiz says the jail has become a financial time bomb. Not only is it dangerous for inmates and staff, the cost to repair the aging facility keeps going up. And he says it's also a legal liability. Sheriff Taylor agrees. He knows conditions inside have reached a breaking point. If we don't get to where we need to be as a community pretty soon, I I would anticipate a large lawsuit. And unfortunately, I'll be their best witness. 
Mark Silverstein could be the one who calls Sheriff Taylor as a witness. He's the legal director of the ACLU of Colorado, and he's not a fan of the current plan in Pueblo. Building a new jail is absolutely the wrong answer and the wrong solution. He says the right answer is to address the cost of bail. People shouldn't have to await trial in jail just because they can't afford a bond. Sheriff Taylor says programs to release people before trial are part of the answer, but not all of it. Still, the point goes to what Taylor says is the most important thing to know about jails. Unlike prisons, not everyone is there to be punished. If you believe in our form of justice, 75% of the people in this building are innocent because they haven't been proven guilty yet. I mean, think about that. Taylor hopes lawmakers keep that in mind as they consider possible fixes this winter. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And as Sam said, Pueblo is far from the only county in Colorado with an overcrowded jail. Darius Allen is a commissioner in Alamosa County, where the jail is about 40 percent over capacity. He testified at the state capitol this summer. Eighty percent of the inmates in Alamosa County are on some sort of mental health medication. Others have high blood pressure, diabetes and pregnancy. Allen said one inmate who was addicted to drugs gave birth in the jail. There was an outbreak of scabies as well. And the cost of dealing with those issues falls to the county, not the state. The state is working on the issue, though. Republican State Senator Don Corum of Montrose chairs a committee looking into overcrowding. He's on the phone. And, Senator, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And Representative Adrian Benavidez is a Democrat from Commerce City, and she's vice chair of this same committee. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Senator Corum, are overcrowded jails more dangerous jails for inmates and for staff? Well, I, I think without a doubt they are more dangerous. How so? Well, I think, uh, you know, anytime you put... Uh, people in in a situation where they're 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 crowded uh i think uh personalities tempers flare and uh, uh you can lead to lead to disaster in uh, in a matter of moments in Sam's story, we heard Pueblo County Sheriff lay much of the blame for overcrowding at the steps of the state capitol representative Benavidez, do you think that's fair um I'm not sure that that's a fair assessment. I think one of the things that we heard, and I, I think Sheriff Taylor would agree with it, is that anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of the people in county jails are people who have not been convicted of anything. They are they were arrested, are waiting trial, and are unable to bond out. Um, so that if that's the bulk of people, then that's not something um, that the state did in changing the penalties. That is, they haven't yet been prosecuted. And for that reason, you're saying that uh, blame shouldn't be laid at the, the steps of the state capitol. Uh, Senator Coram, what do you say? Well, I think uh, the state capitol is, is known for, uh, you know, we are the land of unintended consequences. And uh, I would agree with uh, Representative Benavides uh, on the 75 percent. But I think that there are things that we can do uh, and have done in, in that uh, have probably uh, caused part of the problem. And, uh, uh, you know, we went into this uh, with a very open mind of, and looking for solutions uh, rather than try to create another problem down the road. We'll talk about solutions in a moment, but what step do you think lawmakers may have taken that had unintended consequences? Well, I think uh, the, the, that, 
you know, in sentencing, and, I, and I'm going to go beyond the county jails. I'm going to go to uh, to the state prison. Um, we've kind of tried to make uh, a one one key fits all slots in far as uh, this goes. You know, I'm uh, I'm working with a family that uh, uh, the gentleman is uh, committed to the state Department of Corrections for 80 years for nonviolent crimes. I do want to make a distinction between prisons and jails. So prisons are where convicted criminals go to serve sentences for state crimes. Jails are meant to be a place where the accused await trial. We hear that that's the bulk, as you have heard in several instances of the population, and where the convicted serve out low-level crimes. Uh, but let, let's right, and th- I think that's part of the problem uh, that uh, with the overcrowding of the jails, because once they are convicted, uh, there's only a couple of counties that uh, the um, the convicted uh, person is picked up in a timely fashion. Uh, some of them are held for for uh, maybe a month, and uh, you know the the counties are telling me that's uh, that's at less than cost to uh, to them, and uh, it's considerably less than uh, what the state. Uh, says it costs them to incarcerate. So that's part of the funding uh, glitch that we're dealing with Ah. here. Well, let's talk about solutions. One concern we heard in Sam's story is that many people stay in jail awaiting trial because they can't afford to bond out. Should the state do something about that, Representative Benavides? Yes. uh, One of the proposals we're looking at is... uh, bail reform. Uh, Several uh, jurisdictions use bond schedules and they put dollar bonds on low-level crimes. So help us understand what that means. That means in some jurisdictions in the state, um, they are looking at ways to not assess a dollar bond for someone for a low-level crime, say a municipal violation, um, low-level misdemeanors, that the likelihood, the research shows that the likelihood that they will return for trial is extremely high. So they're released in a way on their own reputation. Well, their own recognizance. And a couple of years ago, we did pass a law that um, allowed for some pretrial risk assessment. There was a tool that was validated by 10 counties, and um, we made it optional. We want to look at making it a requirement that there's be a review of individuals for their risk assessment so they can um, hopefully obtain a personal recognizance bond. Let me just say that over the last year, New Jersey has all but eliminated cash bonds for jail inmates. Uh, Judges instead use a risk assessment tool to decide where someone should await trial. And supporters say it has drastically reduced jail populations without an increase in crime. Uh, is that the sort of thing you have in mind, Senator Corum? I think that's exactly what we're looking at, because uh, once this person is in jail, can't, uh, can't bond out, uh, it's also a huge disruption to the workforce and to the family. So I think this uh, pretrial uh, risk assessment is absolutely the way to go. And I think in the long run, uh, that may be one of the best tools that we can put together. How has it worked so far in the counties that have been testing it? Do you know, Representative Benavides? 
Um, well, we didn't hear from all of the counties, uh-huh. but in Mesa County, where they use a risk assessment tool, they've pretty much eliminated over time utilizing cash bond for lower levels. Some jurisdictions have flat out looked at certain offenses and said, we will issue a citation instead of arresting them and bringing them in, or have said no um, uh, arrest for municipal violations and no cash bond. And Senator Crum, you don't have concerns about public safety in this regard, huh? You you think these assessments are valid enough that you're not letting out people who might commit more crimes? Well, I think uh, that's uh, that's all. You know, the proof is in the pudding, and uh, it depends how well we are trained and uh, exercise the risk assessment. Uh, Stan Hilke, a former Mesa County Sheriff, is actually the gentleman who put the... Uh, program together in Mesa County uh, is our state the public safety director now. And, uh, you know, I think there's a good resource for these uh, for these county jails to go back and rely on on the information. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel, but uh, um, in those situations, it's it's proven that is it has been very effective uh, to an idea that I think you hinted at a bit earlier. Uh, one solution that's come up is to double the compensation for county jails when they hold state inmates. And how often does that happen, Senator Corum, that jails hold state prisoners? Well, that happens in basically 62 of 64 counties. I mean, um, there, there's two things that really contribute to it. Well, one is the person that is uh, is waiting to go to 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 the state uh, facility. Yeah. Um, and the other is uh, those that have been picked up on technical violations. So they're held they're held in that county jail or uh, or they may be held because they have committed another crime. That is to say, maybe they violated their state parole and so they're held in a county jail? They, pending a hearing from the parole board. Interesting. I see. So jails then bear that burden, though the state does reimburse them to some extent. You're saying if the state reimburse them more, they might be able to build out better facilities or hold more people? Well, I think the fact is that uh, there's most of these counties, that's that's a huge subsidy. Uh, uh, first of all, they're they're being uh, uh, responsible for their medical costs, uh, huh. and and that can uh, you know run uh, several hundred thousand dollars to over over a million dollars in some counties that uh, they're spending just on on medical costs. So yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's something. It's it's not one single issue here that is the problem, but it's uh, it's like the the straw on the camel's back. Uh, which one finally breaks the back? Well, Representative Benavidez, as so many of these things too in state policy and state government, there's the question of whether there's more money from the state for this. So perhaps raising the reimbursement to jails, do, do you think that there is political will behind funding this more? Well, clearly in the state we have restrictions on um, budget in our processes. I won't go into those, um, but I don't think that doubling the rate is the way to go. Mm. We had a lot of testimony that um, they don't have the ability to take them to the diagnostic center. So uh, on a given day, there was roughly 200 that are waiting transfer that could be transferred, but the state couldn't take them. So it's not an issue if we charge more, they're going to leave they're still there. So I think there should be a fair reimbursement rate, and we can work with the Joint Budget Committee on that. But uh, doubling it um, without any data as to what difference that would make is not the best approach.
Very briefly, Senator Corum, do you think that there will be real actionable legislation that comes out of this committee, say, in the next uh, session? Uh, yes, I, the committee is, uh, has the opportunity to present five bills, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to, to do that, and um, we will bring our story uh, uh, to the entire General Assembly, and uh, I think the, the counties will certainly be there, and they have the, uh, they have the information to back it up that, uh, that uh, this is an undue burden on those counties. One of my counties doesn't even have a jail. Uh, Archuleta County, their jail was flooded. Hmm. So uh, they're looking at a situation. Uh, if someone is arrested in Archuleta County, uh, they're they're taking uh, 60 miles away to uh, La Plata County. So that's a huge burden also. I imagine. Do you think that the risk assessment going statewide would come out of the next session, Representative Benavides? I certainly hope so. I agree with Senator Coram that our committee was very engaged, and I think we're coming up with some good ideas. And to make that mandatory, as we've already seen, several counties have used it and been, been able to reduce their inmates in their county jails. I, I guess with the idea that a cash bond in a way, disproportionately, would you say, affects the poor? In other words, if you can't pay, you stay. And if you can, you don't. Um, Yes. When I mentioned earlier, some jurisdictions use a bond schedule. So for a range of of violations that they're assessed a bond. They're never individually looked at as to what their risk is for reoffending or returning um, for their arraignment, those kinds of things. So use, utilizing the tool, it looks at not only their return for court, but also public safety. And um, I think at least the counties that have started using it has really helped. And it does, you know, we have inmates that the bond might be as low as $100, but if they can't post it, they have to stay there. No matter what drive. their risk is. Yes, exactly. Well, thanks to both of you for talking about jail overcrowding with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And it's been great uh, listening to you. And uh, I think it was a great committee. I think it was uh, a very effective committee. And I'm very proud of each and every member of that committee. All right. Says the man who chaired it, that State Senator John Corum and Representative Adrian Benavides talking with me again about overcrowding in county jails. Uh, the Republican and Democrat are both on that legislative committee considering fixes. An update now that concerns next year's election. Colorado's unaffiliated voters, the largest voting bloc in the state, will be able to participate in the Republican Party primary. We talked last week with the state Republican chairman about the possibility that his party would cancel the primary altogether. But party leaders and Republican elected officials decided that barring unaffiliated voters could have hurt their chances in the general election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. NASA grants money every year to lines of research that may sound crazy and yet might just work. Three of those grants this year went to Colorado scientists, and we're going to hear from each of them this week. Today's far-out idea, catching asteroids with a bag. 
and mining them for rocket fuel. Chris Dreyer of the Colorado School of Mines is here to explain. And Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. This project really does sound like something out of a movie. We'll get to your specific research in a minute. But first, take us into the future and paint us a picture of how this process would work. Well, the the project is funded by by NASA. The, the funding lead is at a company called TransAstra and a, a Dr. Joel Sircell. We have a significant part of it at Colorado School of Mines. The idea is that we would we would have a future in which we have vehicles going out to near Earth asteroids, capturing them, processing them to to extract water from them. Particularly, water is what we're interested in. Then bringing that water back to Earth and orbit about Earth or the Moon. From there, we can make it into rocket propellant and use it to refuel spacecraft in in orbit about Earth, refuel upper stages of rockets we launch off Earth so they can become space tugs to move things around. That is to say they wouldn't return to Earth to be refueled. They would just return to something close to Earth right. to refuel. They, yeah, they come close to Earth. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, activity in, in, in orbit. We have uh, communication satellites. We have Earth-observing satellites. We, we sometimes don't realize you rely a lot on things that we have in orbit about the Earth. So in this concept, we are creating things that enhance what we can do in orbit and keep it in space. You are essentially creating space gas stations, but water is particularly what you're interested in. Why? I don't think of water necessarily as a fuel. Right. So you can make a water rocket. Uh, one way is you heat it up, become steam, and you can pr- use that directly. Um, but many of our spacecraft use hydrogen and oxygen, uh, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen as a rocket propellant. And you can convert the water in space into liquid oxygen and hydrogen. It's a process called electrolysis. Um, some other rockets use c- methane and oxygen. You could also get that from the asteroids. There's some carbon dioxide we can get ah, from them. It turns out asteroids are rather rich when it comes to fuels. There, there are certain types that are rich in these kinds of things. Okay. And we, we can find them and um, uh, th- there's enough of them that, they're, that this is all worth doing. Fascinating, though. Not all asteroids are created equal. That is to say, some have more than others. Oh, yeah. There's at least three different types. There's huh. there's stony, there's metallic, and there's this type that we're going after that has the, the, the water, the hydrated minerals that we can get water from. Okay. So this might fuel craft that are orbiting Earth. Would this also make a long journey, say, to Mars more feasible as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. If you have propellant in space, then you can start thinking of all sorts of new things you can do. Some of those things are refueling are fueling up a vehicle that would go to Mars. Yeah. Um, you get the water from the asteroid, you bring it to wherever your Mars-bound spacecraft is at, fuel it up, and it has a repellent to, to get there, to enter Mars orbit, maybe even use that to land. Why not just carry the fuel with you? Why make it in space? Well, if, you, if you're carrying it with you, it means you launched it off the Earth. So to bring it with you, you have to have more propellant on your rocket to get the fuel into space that you're going to use in space. So in, in this concept, you're replacing that fuel by getting it in space. That means you can put more mass on your rocket that's ah. like people. It's 
It's more habitat. It's, uh, it's more things that you can take with you to wherever you're going. Well, we know that when we fill up our cars, they get a lot heavier. And the point is you're adding a lot of mass if you're adding that fuel on Earth and then blasting it into space. All right, to this idea of bagging. I've heard of bagging a 14er, not bagging an asteroid. <laughs> uh, so what would that look like? Right. So um, the, uh, the concept is... This is the transaster concept of which we're helping to understand the process. This is a company you're working with. Right, yeah. And they're, they're, they're the lead on this NASA-funded work. The, um, the concept is to find the right size asteroid. It's about, about the size of a house, imagine. And okay. then, then your spacecraft has an inflatable bag that envelops that asteroid and seals it off. Uh, it also has some other things to s- slow it down. They're spinning, so you have to slow it down. Asteroids are spinning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, like the Earth is rotating, and, and that causes some issues for capturing it. So you're essentially catching a spinning house. Okay, that doesn't sound easy. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then we have uh, inflatable mirrors that are – you inflate and you concentrate sunlight through an opening in the bag onto the surface of the asteroid. This type of asteroid you need to heat – to some rather high temperatures in order to release the water that's trapped in minerals. You do that, and you also have to fracture it into smaller pieces. Okay, and so this, it's like a solar bag that's enveloping it and concentrating the heat to break it up. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of right. Um, then as, of all, as the water and other things are being produced, there's some other location in, attached to the bag where the gases, the water particularly, can be captured and condensed. Um, because you have to remove it from the bag so that it doesn't that as the pressure builds up, you want to capture it into a condenser and that's um and that's that's, it. It. that's all you have <laughs> yeah. to do what What is the biggest obstacle to doing this? would you say like what's the biggest problem you'd have to solve well there's uh there's a number of problems. one of the things we are and I wouldn't call them necessarily problems or merely challenges there's um what we are working on at, at the Colorado School of Mines is the is understanding how light interacts with asteroids to cause them to fracture and release volatiles, and in that in that process we have, we're building a facility that will help us do that. You are essentially trying to model what would occur in space here on Earth because you don't want to just take it for granted that heat would split up asteroids and release this precious water. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and that, that if we say what's one of the challenges is the environment of the asteroid is unique. It's in microgravity. It's far from the sun. So we have to, for us to develop something to do, we have to create an incremental process of experimentation and modeling so that when we arrive at the asteroid doing it for the first time, we think it will work. How do you simulate an asteroid on Earth? Well, one of the first steps is that you collect, you you make an asteroid simulant. We actually have asteroids on Earth. They're called meteorites. And so so we have, but they're all very small. The particular type we're interested in, you can't get a very large mass. So you make simulants. Uh, You go out, you find the right kind of minerals, you grind them up, you... You mix them together in the right way. We have a another partner in the project who's helping us with that part. Essentially, an asteroid creation. Yeah, yeah. model asteroid creation. Yes, and um, then we are we're running our experiments inside a vacuum chamber because there's no air in space, so we have to remove all the air and do it in a vacuum. Um, and uh, 
Then we have a method to capture the volatiles that the water once created and a very large lamp that's going to simulate the sun and the concentrated sunlight. Fascinating. This is going on. And the idea has received a NASA funding before, I'll say. It's one of seven phase two grants awarded this year. So you're, you're making progress. What, what happens next? How far off is this, do you think? Somewhere around, could be done somewhere around um, 10 years from now. Um, is really what we believe could, could happen. That in a decade, this could be occurring in space. Yes. Huh. I want to say that mining in space is a new focus at the Colorado School of Mines, which has launched a graduate program in space resources. And you're teaching one of those classes this semester. How does uh, this project fit into the future of mining? Like if you make this breakthrough, does this lead to 10 other big things? Yeah, it does. We, once you can make propellant in space, you can start doing a lot of new things. You could build structures from materials that you have in space, really go further with processing materials and make, make metals and manufacture things. Space factories. Right. Yeah. And, and this would greatly change the way we do space exploration. You could build larger spacecraft, larger satellites. Um, you go further. NASA is, is investigating ways of making propellant and other things on Mars to enable Mars exploration. So that's all Or part. even colonization. Right, yeah. Well, NASA, I don't think, is, is focused on colonization. But that's certainly what many people are, think, are talking about is, is colonization. Yeah, it's really the fundamental idea that if you can bring – if you don't have to bring it with you, that is, if you can make it when you get there, you open up a whole range of possibilities right. in yeah. space. That's what we do on Earth. We don't, we don't make, you know, when we came, we, you, don't make, uh, you don't carry everything around with you. You find what you need where you go. Fascinating. Um, so at the School of Mines, we, are, we have started up a space resources program that uh, we hope to fully launch next fall. Uh, we're starting up by, by having a few pilot classes. And uh, I'm teaching the first of those pilot classes this fall. And then we plan that in the spring there'll be a few more so that we're fully ready to go to have start offering a ver- graduate degrees, uh, a master's degree and a Ph.D. and a certificate next fall. In space mining. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Chris Dreyer is an assistant research professor at the Colorado School of Mines. And he's one of several Coloradans who've landed a NIAC grant from NASA This program invests in ideas that seem like science fiction, but could become reality. And the NIAC Symposium in Denver uh, is taking place this week. It's free and open to the public. You can find out more at cprnews.org. And tomorrow, we're going to hear about a soft, frisbee-like robot that could actually land on an asteroid. Dinosaur artist sounds like an answer you'd get if you asked a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, Melody Brooke Safekin became one. She's been drawing dinosaurs since she was little, growing up on the Western Slope where fossils are plentiful. Today, she's a nationally known paleontological illustrator, and she's currently the artist in residence at the Mesa County Library in Grand Junction, where she is now teaching others to draw the past. And Melody is in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's the difference between someone who draws dinosaurs and a paleontological illustrator? Mostly it's just the level of accuracy that you strive to achieve. Um, A good way to think about it is that somebody that uh, enjoys drawing dinosaurs for fun might not necessarily consider how feathers might lay on the forearm of a velociraptor. But my job is to go ahead and interpret the bones and look at modern living animals to try and best simulate what they would have looked like in life. Mm. And so that comes with some training I'm gathering in biology, anatomy. A little bit. Uh, Most of my work is actually self-taught. I've taken a lot of classes on dinosaurs and primarily illustration and animation so that I could understand the functions of life and how to simulate uh, real-world situations that direction and then take my self-study from paleontology. And a lot of my work uh, deals with allowing experts in their field to give me information and oversee the work that I do so that I have the cutting edge of somebody that is strictly changed or, uh, trained in paleontology. Got it. And we work together to create these illustrations. So they're giving you feedback as you make this art. And illustrating prehistory means creating something that neither you nor anyone else has actually ever seen. Um, exactly. Can, can you compare that to... I don't know, say trying to draw a dragon? I mean, is there some amount of imagination in this? Yes. Yes, definitely. It's uh, actually pretty similar. Um, If you were to consider, say, uh, Smaug, the great and terrible, that, uh, you know, the dragon that what a workshop created, it was their job to take living animals such as bats and lizards primarily um, to understand how an animal that was a combination of the two might be able to function and then bring it to life on screen. What I do is very similar, where I have to use comparative anatomy for, say, uh, a chicken and or an ostrich and see how their locomotion works, how their muscles work, and use a little bit of reptile anatomy as well and use the two of those together to make a dinosaur that somebody hasn't ever seen in life but that seems as though it also could. Wait, there are similarities between chickens and dinosaurs? Absolutely. The chicken is actually the closest living relative of dromaeosaurs, like a velociraptor, or Deinonychus, any of the, you know, very popular dinosaurs that uh, have the sickle claw. Uh, so studying chickens gives you real insight into all sorts of things, I imagine. Yeah, movement and mm-hmm. um, what else? Um, behavioral um, adaptations that a lot of birds have are something that we can also apply to dinosaurs. Uh, a chicken is a nice example because they happen to be very easily accessible. There's a lot of them. You can have some in your own backyard to reference. But the way that they structure themselves as a society and a pecking order, um, you can apply to ancient animals that may have lived in similar situations can also use that uh, chickens are technically cannibalistic and interpret that other animals of a, you know, an extinct nature of a similar size might have also been cannibalistic. Right, because you have to think not just about how they look in your paleontological mm-hmm. illustrations, but how they act. And so you, yes. you, you work with chickens in this. and I do. What kind of rapport do you establish with a chicken that you're drawing? 
Well, I raise chickens as though they were dogs. Um, I am known as a crazy chicken lady. Okay. But uh, they're very intelligent animals, and you can train them. I have them walk on leashes. They lay down. They roll over. They use the litter box. Uh, so having birds that are that sociable allows me to really be able to use them, you know, close up. They don't mind me referencing wings, uh, but somebody that it's at home that might not necessarily have a bird that they can handle that closely. You can always go to your local supermarket and just buy a turkey or a chicken and take it home and use that as muscle reference as well. As so muscle they reference. They happen to be, yeah. Is it true that you've taught Thanksgiving's a... quite a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you get all kinds of inspiration with that bird. Is it true you've taught a chicken to make a sound like a velociraptor? I have, and you can do that yourself as well. Young roosters, um, from about the first day that they're born until the first three weeks, are incredibly influenced by the auditory sounds you know that they hear in their world. And I found this out by accident and then have been able to replicate it. But uh, some of the roosters that I was raising, I, as a child, watched Jurassic Park a lot because, you know, I love dinosaurs. Yeah. And they would mimic the sounds that they would hear on screen. And the favorite happened to be the velociraptor screech because that happened to be the loudest. And so one rooster in particular really loved this, picked it up and would use that as a warning call whenever something would disturb him. And then the other roosters picked it up, and now there are still roosters out in Whitewater, where we used to live, that mimic his original call. That mimic so it's been pretty interesting. The sound of a velociraptor. You're listening to Colorado yeah. Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with one of the country's leading paleontological illustrators. That's Melody Brooke Safekin, and she is currently artist-in-residence at the Mesa County Library in Grand Junction, so she's teaching others to draw the past. And uh, I want to know if it was difficult to break into this field. I mean, you're, you're big in this field now. You've done dinosaur illustrations for, uh, pr- like, Jurassic World, I think. Mm-hmm. It's one of the sequels yes, for Jurassic Parks. Yeah, you have uh, yes. dinosaur trading cards you've done, dinosaur books. There are illustrations you're doing for the Dinosaur Journey Museum in Fruta. Is, is this mm-hmm. tough to break into? For me, it happened to be a pretty smooth transition, but I had been working with the museum since I was in my freshman year of college, and so that was something that I was able to easily transition into because it was something I already had an interest in. Um, But outside of that, there's a very large and accepting community around paleontological illustration, and um, when I first started as soon as I graduated in 2014, I was lucky enough to, you know, find individuals that were definitely interested in my art, and it took off. And the museum you mentioned, again, is the Dinosaur Journey Museum in Fruta. Uh, yes, that's correct. There are some images of dinosaurs that are really well known to the general public. So I'm thinking of the fearsome Tyrannosaurus rex and the Velociraptor. Uh, that's the bird-like dinosaur in the Jurassic Park <laughs> movies. Uh, but you say that, that those portrayals are often not accurate. What, what do you believe is wrong with some of those images? Well, when Steven Spielberg was creating a lot of the animals for Jurassic Park, one of the main um, happenings that has developed since then is that we weren't quite understanding of feather coverings on a lot of these animals. And at the time, in 1990, we thought that perhaps they were bird-like, which he did implement into the films, but we weren't quite sure about feather covering. Well, now we know that they were covered in feathers. So any modern showings of the Jurassic Park franchise are definitely incorrect that way. 
but also they wanted animals that they could copyright as strictly Jurassic Park-looking dinosaurs. So they even went as far as to slightly modify the T-Rex's skull so that he has a very unique look. And uh, animals like the Velociraptor that's very iconic in Jurassic Park is actually a completely different animal. It is not Velociraptor. Um, True Velociraptor have very long faces, and they're actually quite small. They're only about three feet tall and about six feet long. But uh, since that did not seem to inspire the movie monster fear that he was looking for, (laughs) they went ahead and used a different animal, which is called Deinonychus, which is just a larger raptor, which happens to be six foot tall and 12 feet long. Who knew that dinosaurs in movies might be manipulated in terms of appearance? Yes. (laughs) So as to claim the copyright, uh, and this can perhaps give us then misunderstandings of, of these creatures. Definitely. So um, a lot of people are introduced through Jurassic Park, so they tend to associate them with dinosaurs wholly. I feel like a lot of kids love dinosaurs, and then something about that love—I um, don't know—either isn't nurtured or doesn't doesn't persist as much into adulthood. Are you met, meeting as as artist in residence many adults for whom that passion for dinosaurs has not dimmed? I am. Um, There's definitely much more children that are involved. uh, But as far as adults go, I've found that it's particularly in this community, there's still a lot of love for dinosaurs here. And in the western slope of Colorado, we live in the heart of the Morrison Formation, which is, you know, the richest source of dinosaur fossils in North America. So we get to have a really interesting relationship with dinosaurs that I feel has inspired some more love. And we have a lot of paleontologists here and appreciators of the field. Yeah, and people who probably find fossils in their own backyard. Melody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Melody Brooks-Safkin is a paleontological illustrator, and she's currently the artist-in-residence at the Mesa County Library. She joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction, and you can see her work at cprnews.org. Postpartum depression hits one in five new mothers. A smaller number will deal with postpartum OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. That includes Denver composer Loretta Notoreski, who turned to music to process her experience. Her string quartet will be performed tonight alongside a panel discussion on postpartum mental health at Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora. CPR's Brad Turner has Notoreski's story. Loretta Notoreski remembers singing this folk tune just minutes after she gave birth to her daughter. It goes, Oh, how lovely is the evening, is the evening when the bells are sweetly ringing. Notoreski felt unforgettable joy that January day three years ago when she and her husband held their newborn baby Ruby in a Denver hospital. One of the beautiful things about her birth was that it was late afternoon and the sun was coming in through the windows. Um, And I just, it just seemed like this perfect moment for someone to come into the world. That moment of euphoria after Ruby arrived didn't last long. That night in the hospital, Notoreski sat in a rocking chair while her newborn daughter slept. She says a scary thought popped into her head. What I imagined was that I would throw her down the spiral staircase in our house, which is just, you know... 
Like, how could you think that, right? Notoreski had just experienced what doctors call an intrusive thought. Everyone has them once in a while. This thought, and those that followed, marked the start of something more frightening for Notoreski. Postpartum obsessive-compulsive disorder. And it intensified a few days later when Notoreski and her husband brought Ruby home from the hospital. Everyday objects, like a knife on a countertop, suddenly seemed threatening. It's like this, a what-if thought that becomes overwhelming. Uh, and I saw the, we have a cellar and the cellar stairs were open so we could get down to the laundry. And I thought, what if she fell down the stairs? And I saw there was a rope that was in the house and I looked at it and I thought, what if she were strangled in the rope? Postpartum mental illness often feels like a crisis. That's according to Kim Spring Thompson. She's a clinical psychologist with Children's Hospital Colorado. Thompson works with a lot of new mothers, like Notoreski, who need treatment and therapy. Thompson explains that a new mom who has intrusive thoughts or feels depressed might be scared to ask for help. She says other mothers fear they'll develop a severe postpartum mental illness, like Andrea Yates. She was a Houston woman who suffered from postpartum psychosis and murdered her five children. When these women start to experience symptoms, if that's their only context for what postpartum mood disorders looks like, it's very scary to think that they might be ending up in that same position. Thompson says the key is to get help fast. Notoreski told a nurse in the hospital after her first intrusive thought and quickly got counseling and therapy. Notoreski says all through this, she remained a loving and caring mother. I had not lost touch with reality. I wasn't crazy. You know, I wasn't psychotic. But I I was afraid. She found herself repeating phrases in her head to take her mind off the negative ones. She thought of harmless objects, like a soft infant hairbrush, a toy duck, and the name Babyface. And then Babyface was one of the early nicknames that I gave Ruby. She also thought of musical patterns. She'd bounce chords around in her head when her anxiety kept her up at night. It could resolve that way, or it could resolve like this. I couldn't sleep. And so it was like the musical equivalent of counting sheep. And if I did that, then I could relax enough to fall asleep. A contemporary classical group Notoreski works with, Playground Ensemble, asked her to write a string quartet a few months ago. She decided to write about her struggles as a new mother. And some of those patterns she played with in her head found their way into her music. It took about a year of treatment and therapy for the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety that came with them to feel manageable. Now she says she's recovered. She works and composes and takes care of Ruby. How you doing? Notoreski picks up Ruby from preschool on a recent afternoon, and three-year-old Ruby jumps into her mom's arms. They get home and sit down at the piano. The farmer is the child. The farmer doesn't eat the child. Meanwhile, Notoreski has finished her piece about her struggle with postpartum OCD. She calls it String Quartet OCD. The final movement is called Second Delivery. Notoreski says after giving birth to her daughter, the year that followed felt like a longer, tougher kind of birth. And the melody she sang on the night her daughter was born turns up in this final movement. It's a kind of reclaiming of that tune because I associate it with the very early period of my daughter's life, which was so hard. Um, You know, at the same time as I was very in love with her, it was very difficult emotionally. One day, Ruby, when she's older, will hear the string quartet. She'll hear the sounds of the darker moments that came with being a new mother, 
but she'll also hear the moments of joy her mother experienced. They're both part of understanding what Notoreski went through. I'm Brad Turner, Colorado Public Radio News. You can hear Notoreski's String Quartet OCD tonight at Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora. It'll be performed alongside a panel tonight on postpartum mental health. You can also hear the full piece in a podcast from CPR Classical called Centennial Sounds. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks so much for spending time with us.